lies the past. The events about to unfold before us happened nearly 40 years ago. Perhaps they happened to you. Perhaps you were among the crowds that stormed the capital on that fateful day, some shouting for war, some crying for peace. Inside the White House, President Woodrow Wilson conferred with advisors, then signed the proclamation of war against Germany. The men present here are gone, but preserved on film, this moment of history remains. The news was flashed on the latest wireless transmitter. Headlines told the story to the people of America, for the parlor radio was still years in the future. Everywhere there was cheering and a waving of flags. This was a generation still romantic enough to look upon the First World War as the great adventure. General John J. Pershing, who had chased Pancho Villa in Mexico, found himself chased in turn by the shrill Bobby Sox Brigade of 1917. Appointed to head an American expeditionary force, which mainly had to be built from scratch, Black Jack Pershing became a national hero. Crowds cheered his every appearance, like this one at an athletic meet featuring a frantic 100-yard dash by the Bloomer Girls. On June 5th, 1917, 10 million men got in line as every American between the ages of 21 and 30 registered for the first U.S. draft since the Civil War. On July 20th, Secretary of War Baker pulled a number from a goldfish bowl and the great draft lottery was on. For more than 14 hours straight, officials drew numbers to determine the order in which men were to be called to the colors. Across the nation, excited crowds watched bulletin boards like this one run by a Jewish language newspaper. A soldier-to-be sees his number come up and goes jubilantly off, his head filled with dreams of glory. Soon the streets resounded to departing draftees. By December 15th, more than half a million men had been sent to camps built in two months, a construction job which used enough roofing to cover Manhattan with Atlantic City thrown in. flung out uniforms in two famous sizes, too big and too small. You may have been a farm boy from Nebraska, a ribbon clerk from California, a piano tuner from New York. But from now on, you'll do your own washing, get up to music at 5.45, and wear your haircut close to the bone. You're in the army now. serious side of army life were made for brief local showings in the various camp areas. For 40 years they have remained unseen, gathering dust in rusting cans on vault shelves. Now, for a brief moment, they bring back a day gone and forever past, when we who are old were young, and we who are young had not yet been born. The rookies of 1917 got in trim to lick the Kaiser with a series of exercises apparently inspired by Bernard McFadden and the physical culturists. Among these arm-swinging doughboys, you may find a relative or a friend, or even yourself in that carefree, cockeyed time where life lay before you and even war could seem a game. 
frequent camp visitor was Billy Sunday, who gave up baseball to become an evangelist, but retained the motions of a fireball pitcher. Billy, who liked the Kaiser even less than he liked beer and bridge whist, called the Hun infamous, vile, greedy, sensuous, and bloodthirsty. Former President Theodore Roosevelt tirelessly toured the camps. Even after his youngest son was killed in France, the old Rough Rider spoke on, bringing inspiration to crowds stretching to the horizon. Soon, the number of rookies thrusting bayonets exceeded the total population of Philadelphia. In the enormous effort to make the world safe for democracy, the army was spending over a million dollars an hour. And the doughboys, preparing for trench warfare, were digging a billion ditches. All the blistered hands and the aching backs. And tomorrow, the job is to fill up all those holes again. When 10 p.m. bedtime neared, there wasn't a man in the army who couldn't sleep. Five, six, seven months of training, and then one day a last parade, a farewell to camp, the beginning of a journey that would end in the lines of battle. Sailors setting out for duty at sea were bedecked with flowers by admiring young ladies dressed in the latest fashion. And who wouldn't feel a hero with a send-off like that? Just before the train pulls out, families and friends say goodbye in a moment that remains poignant across the years. Down New York's Fifth Avenue, in almost endless parades they marched. The cheers of the crowds helping mightily to dispel the uneasy feeling that rose in the pit of many a doughboy's stomach. Their destination was a bridge of ships to France, by far the greatest the world had seen till then. and other diversions helped pass the time for men who jammed into holes on bunks piled to the ceiling discovered their greatest enemy was seasickness. Backing the soldier in France was the home front and the most frenzied of home front activities was shipbuilding. Ships made of wood exceeded those of steel by more than two to one, the last gasp of a dying age. Shipyard workers received the same hero status as fighting men. Launchings, accompanied usually by bands, confetti, and pretty girls, increased steadily until they neared an astonishing 150 a month. Munitions factories hum. This was a war of the smokestacks, a war to be won by industrial capacity. Edison, a leader in that war, looks over an army truck 
driven now by the jaunty Secretary of War, Newton D. Baker. President Wilson, whose appearances grew rarer as his burdens increased, provides history's scrapbook with a typical and human pose. The war brought a new mass production industry into being, the building of planes. Under government directive, piano factories turned out wings, auto body manufacturers turned out fuselages. Capable of dropping bombs, scouting the enemy, or engaging in dogfights, the glamorous battle plane was a flimsy but formidable agent of destruction. Like never before in history, America's women pitched into the fight. New York got female cops. Shortages had forced the ladies to give up their steel corsets, but they gained an iron determination. Women letter carriers replaced men off to war. The government had taken over the railroads. Now the ladies did too, filling jobs from engineer to yard laborer. And when she wasn't working in office, factory, or farm, the gallant female knit socks for soldiers, wrote letters to her man overseas, and hooverized her meals, cutting down on wheat, meat, fats, and sugar, because the slogan told her, food will win the war. Even the precarious profession of steeplejack had its lady practitioners. Her unceasing efforts lightened the burden of war and won her the vote. But above all, she remained a woman. As it had to the feet of departing men, the canyon of Fifth Avenue echoed now to marching nurses. In black, white, or gray, they brought the feminine touch to the sale of war bonds and stimulated the nation's fighting spirit. Secretary of Navy Daniels and his young undersecretary, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, reviewed the Yeomanettes and Marinettes, service ladies bedecked in uniforms which fashion experts of the day called both military and feminine. Buy bonds, blot out the Hun, do your utmost. Those orders were everywhere. The Liberty Bond goal was a staggering $20 billion and everybody worked to put sails over the top. Bands, four-minute men, Teddy Roosevelt, lover of the strenuous life who had only a year of it left. Movie stars like dynamic Douglas Fairbanks and America's sweetheart Mary Pickford. Thus inspired, the home front bought almost enough bonds to pay for the war. Through the harbors of France, U.S. troops poured in an ever-swelling torrent, lifeblood for the embattled allies. From the Pershing-led first shipment of 14,000, their numbers mounted to two million by war's close. The coming of the Yanks did much to rally the French people, embittered by terrible losses during three long years of fighting. Never had the slogging, dog-faced foot soldier enjoyed a greater popularity. When all the marching was through, the doughboy got to parlez-vous with Mademoiselle from Armentiers, an experience he would talk about for the rest of his days. Camp Franco-American was established to combat the heavy casualties suffered by the first U.S. troops in their baptism of fire. Seasoned French fighters taught the tricks of a deadly trade in which experience could mean survival. For lessons in how to use a gas mask, the Yanks filed into a fume-filled bunker. 
Note the officer, his revolver on the ready in case someone should change his mind. To that good old American chow line grub, something new was added, French bread. Many a doughboy thought it could win the war if loaded into cannon and fired at the enemy. Our boys ate, drank, and were merry on a green lawn of the far-off French countryside in a long-vanished moment of time. Training completed, doughboys boarded the famed 40 and 8s, tiny boxcars carrying 40 men or 8 horses in a manner that would shock a sardine. This was the first leg of the journey to the front. The second lay through French villages, still unscarred by war, where girls with names like Charmaine and Marianne waved encouragement to Yanks who must, alas, move on. The third leg, by truck or on foot, passed through country fields, the sounds of battle dim in the distance. Ahead, the Kaiser's armies had mounted a vast new offensive, hurtling 800,000 picked troops at the Allies. Into this battle moved the Americans to weave their exploits into the fabric of history, the big parade that turned the tide of war. Now the path became a labyrinth of trenches, winding to the muddiest of conflicts. Across the barbed wire drifted poison gas, seeping silently into the hollows, adding new terror to that godforsaken place called no man's land. Wood, Chateau Thierry, the Marne, Samuel, the Argonne Forest, the Yanks proved their worth as fighting men. America's troops, plus her industrial capacity, tipped the scales of war in favor of the Allies. The receding enemy tide left in its wake French villages occupied since the war's first days. But alas, Constant shellings had reduced them to piles of rubble on broken streets. Only skeletons remained to be liberated. From these skeletons, prisoners carried their wounded, left behind in the great German retreat. From the trenches in many sectors poured the enemy, hands up, yelling, Kamerad. Captives were taken by the thousands. The Kaiser's great military machine was crumbling for all the world to see. November 11, 1918, the armistice, crowds, noise, confetti. To many, it all seemed like living life twice. Four days earlier, on November 7, a false report of armistice had brought on the same demonstration. But this time, it was true. The war was really over. America's young ladies joined mightily in the fun, never dreaming they were the lost generation, soon to be called flappers and flaming youth. Across no man's land charged two opposing armies, not to kill and maim, but to shake hands, slap backs, switch hats, laugh, cheer, dance, perhaps even to cry, for the war had passed and they were the lucky ones who were left. From the front marched the Americans to the blare of bands, back through cheering towns to Paris itself, where, under the Arc de Triomphe and down the Champs-Élysées, 
past a vast victory parade in an all too fleeting moment when the world seemed finished with war. On December 23, 1918, past the Statue of Liberty, sailed the first ships of returning doughboys, fulfilling the battle cry, Heaven, Hell, or Hoboken by Christmas. Vessels of all types steamed out to greet the transports, whose decks and riggings were black with waving men. saw the doughboys off on what was to seem the longest train ride in the world. For at the other end of those tracks lay home. At home stations, the wait seemed as long. Then suddenly the train was in, filled with joyous travelers from the Rhine to Texas. Where now are these marching men? Where are the crowds who cheered them? The mothers, dads, and sweethearts who waited to greet them? Where are these happy homecoming moments? Where are the snows of yesteryear? In Washington, troops in orderly array swept down Pennsylvania Avenue. Through a victory arch, horse-drawn caissons went rolling along in final triumph before the motor trucks stole their glory away. The parade was reviewed by President Wilson, whose 14 points had done much to bring the peace. General Pershing received a badly aimed bouquet. For these fighting men, war was over. But for the kids in short pants who watched them march, it would come again. In New York, flanked by balloons and columns, a mammoth arch was built just for the occasion. Starting here, the homecoming parade moved up Fifth Avenue before a crowd of two million. to the brave. For the nation, this was to be victory's sweetest hour. Ahead lay the peace conference, prohibition, and the rip-roaring twenties. But that is another story for another time. Back at the arch, at the beginning of this emotion-filled pageant so long past, the lines of marchers came on and on, until the crowd could contain itself no longer, but surged forward to engulf the ranks of happy boys come home. Then, perfect strangers found themselves in each other's arms, and there was dancing in the streets. It all happened nearly 40 years ago. The curtain lowers, 